Um, so we're introduced to the, um, the Acts of the Apostles, this book of Acts, the New Testament church, and uh, we're introduced to the, the growth of it. We're seeing the power uh, demonstrated. We're seeing God do all these great and mighty works. But we're also, and I, and I love that the, the Bible makes this clear for us because sometimes people like to show the good part and leave out the bad part. The Bible is making it very clear that with this great power, comes great opposition. So we're seeing this opposition that's unfolding. As this great power is demonstrated, the enemy is trying to come and create tension and bring spiritual attack against the church. And really, it's, it's, it's something that as you look at warfare all throughout history, it's a tactic that is commonly used to create a distraction and get attention over here and it, it diverts the attention so a larger attack can come from somewhere else, or it puts the enemy in a defensive mode so they can't be on the offense. We've constantly got to be dealing with these little issues and defending ourselves against these attacks so we can't progress and we can't move forward and we can't continue to take the ground and take possession of the things that we've been taking. And that was really what the enemy was trying to do to the church was I mean, I don't know. You think at some point the devil would realize that he's been defeated. He always is going to be defeated, and he can never stand up against God. So it's like he, he settled maybe for the fact that I can't defeat him, but maybe I can stop him. I lost at Calvary, and I see this powerful movement of the church, and I, I can't beat them, but maybe I can distract them and stop them from progressing and stop them from growing. So you see these... And you see these issues that are coming up. We see people being thrown into jail. Uh, there's opposition that's just trying to silence them. And then it kind of takes a turn. We looked at this last time in, um, in Acts chapter 5. It kind of takes a turn, and it's the internal distraction. It's something that happened from within the church that diverts people at, people's attention. And Acts 5 doesn't really deal with um, it. just says when Ananias and Sapphira were killed, the great fear came upon them. But let's just step back and look at this and be real. Can you imagine if you pulled up to church tonight and we had uh, Ivan and Chris were carrying Caleb and they're like, hey, um, we're going to start music practice late. Uh, God actually killed Caleb because he, uh, he had some money that he said he gave to Vision 239, but he kept some of it back. So, and we're like, oh, okay, cool. Wait, what? <laughs> That's literally what happened. They're like... They had to go to church and realize that they're taking these guys out to bury them because they sold something that belonged to them and said they gave all the money to God and held some. So it's just kind of like a weird, you can't tell me you don't go home at night and like stare at the ceiling for about three hours wondering what in the world just happened and how do I make sure that I don't do what they did? And great fear came upon them. So there's, there's, there's that distraction that's happening. And then there's what we're reading about here, and it's, it's another internal distraction. These are the Jews that are fighting against the Jews. We have the Greek Jews complaining about the Hebrew Jews and how they're treating the widows. So you've got the church, the Jewish people are fighting against each other, the Jewish Christians. And there ain't no fight like a Jew fight. And these Jews are going at it. And they're like, look at what you did. <laughs> He's like, no, look at what you did. <laughs> so you've got the Greek Jews and the Hebrew Jews that are fighting against each other. 
And whenever this type of tension exists within a church, not only are those people not involved in ministry because they're going after each other, but now the leaders have to be pulled off of ministering and furthering the gospel to come and deal with these fights that are happening between the people. So there's failure on both ends. These people should be ministering to other people, but instead fighting against each other. And now the other people that are supposed to be out ministering have to come in and resolve their fights. So we're, we're losing people left and right because of this, these internal issues. They're distractions that the enemy is trying to create within the church. So they're, they're fighting against each other. One day they're burying deceptive disciples the next day, they're breaking these fights between the Jews. And these are just things that are to distract them from their mission. I, I don't know if I've shared this story before. I heard it years ago um, that there was, a, there was a kind of traditional church. And there were some younger people within the church that decided that they were sick of the, uh, they had one of those upright pianos that sat over in the corner. And they thought, you know, that's kind of old-fashioned. We want to be a little more modern. Uh, when the praise when the worship leader was up, like, you can't see his nice skinny jeans when he's over sitting at the piano. So he wanted to have a keyboard that he could stand behind. So there started this fight within the church. The church was separated over this issue because the, uh, the older people wanted the traditional upright piano, and the younger crowd, they wanted the keyboard. So they, they were fighting over it. There's tension happening in the church. And as the story was told to me, uh, one of the older people snuck in in the middle of the night and they took the keyboard and they hit it. And for six months, they had to use the upright piano because nobody could find the keyboard. Guess where they found the keyboard? Somebody was cleaning behind the platform, and in the empty baptistry, they found the keyboard at the bottom of it. And the moral of the story is, when there's fighting in the church, you're not going to be using your baptistry. Because there's no focus on new people. It's all becomes about me and what I like and what makes me comfortable and what makes me happy. And that people get pulled, resources get pulled in to deal with those types of issues. And, and that's where we're at in, in Acts chapter 6 is they're, they're working through this issue and they're, they're dealing with these, with these issues. And um, the Bible goes on to tell us that they appointed seven men that were basically responsible of taking care of some of the day-to-day -day ministry at the church. And, uh, and Stephen, Stephen is one of those men. This is where we're first introduced to this man named Stephen. In verse number five, it says, It pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Procurius, or however you pronounce that, Nicanor, and Timon, and Perminus, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. So they chose these seven men, but the way that it positions Stephen, it's almost putting him out as kind of the leader of these groups. So, so, so just work with me when I say that, that I personally believe, basically he was like the head waiter. Their job was to go wait these tables, and this was like the head waiter that was over the other waiters. So he's put in, he's put in this position, and the Bible says that he was a man of, of faith, and that he was full of the Holy Ghost. Now, I, I mean, I, I understand that that's a qualification. That should be a qualification of serving within the church. I don't know if I need another microphone or a battery or what's going on here, but I keep cutting out. Um, 
I don't know if it, it, I, I don't know why they make it so clear, but the the Bible wants us to know that this man, this man Stephen, it doesn't say this about the other men, but this man Stephen was full of faith and he was full of the Holy Ghost. And we're like, we need to put that man in a leadership ministry. We need to give that man a microphone. We need to give that man a pulpit. But no, they put him in a serving ministry. But they made sure to note that this was a man that was full of faith and he was full of the Holy Ghost. And the Bible goes on to tell us in in verse number um, 8, once again, it points us back to Stephen and, and points out the fact that he was full of faith and of power, and he did great wonders and miracles among the people. So this is a man that was giving a serving ministry, but he was full of faith, and he was full of the Holy Ghost. So we see what happens when somebody is giving a ministry that may seem like it's beneath them, but if you're full of faith and you're full of the Holy Ghost, your position doesn't matter. He didn't need a position. He didn't need permission. He was full of faith, and he was full of the Holy Ghost, and there was something about that formula that great power and great wonders were wrought by his hands because he was full of faith and full of the Holy Ghost. Didn't matter that I didn't get the job that I wanted. You can make me serve tables, but as soon as I get done serving the tables, I'm going to go find somebody, and I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to witness to them. I'm going to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what somebody that's full of the Holy Ghost and full of faith does. Now, we've all seen people that aren't full of the Holy Ghost and aren't full of faith that didn't get the ministry that they wanted. I'm not going to serve in the parking lot. I, you either give me the microphone or I'm leaving. Put me in the pulpit. I've got way too much stuff to share. Like, your life is speaking volumes. You don't even need a microphone. We're just watching you, and we can't even keep up with all the notes. But somebody that's full of faith and full of the Holy Ghost, you put me in whatever position that there's a need. Wherever the need is, I'll serve in that need. But, but my purpose and my ministry is not just that need. I'm still called to do greater things. I'm still called to spread the gospel. I'm still called to show and demonstrate the power of God. That was the mindset of this man, Stephen. Basically stuck in the nursing home, feeding the elderly, but yet noted for great power being worked through his life. What could happen if I could get a hold of that, Brother Ulysses? What if happened if we could all could get a hold of that? If I don't care what ministry you put me in, if you need somebody to just stand there and make sure that stinking door doesn't slam like 60 times in one service, I'll stand out there and do it, but I'm still going to go minister to people. I've still got power that's inside of me that needs to be released. God's still going to, I've still got a neighborhood to reach. But somehow we have this like hierarchy of, well, I want to get promoted to that ministry, and once I get that ministry, that's when I'll start preaching. You've got it backwards. You don't need a pulpit to preach. You don't need a microphone to preach. You don't need permission to preach. You don't need anybody's permission to invite somebody over to your house for a Bible study. You don't have to get the executive board to approve it. You can just say, hey, why don't you go to lunch with me and let me tell you what Jesus has done in my life. Oh, but I just served the tables. 
We'll leave that to the ministry. No, this was a man that was full of faith, and he was full of the Holy Ghost, and he was full of the mission of Jesus Christ. So his position and his role did not matter to him. And all these great things are happening through his life. He did great wonders and miracles among the people. But then there arose certain of the synagogue of the freedmen, and they were disputing Stephen. Literally, when you go and study out verse number 9, the, the word that's used here, the libertines in the King James Version, is freedmen in other versions, but libertines is, 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 is pulled in from the, from the Greek. It is translated literally to infer somebody that used to be a slave but is no longer a slave. So these are Greek-speaking Jews that used to be slaves, and they're opposing this man, Stephen. And what I see when I studied that out, what I see coming to the surface is these are people that may not be bound as a slave currently. They may be freed in their body, but they're still bound in their mind. Because a slave has a mentality that when I'm told to do something, that's the task that I have to perform. I'm going to do my best job at that task, but that's all I have to do. There's a difference between a slave and a son. A son has ownership. A son is working for something that eventually is going to be his. It represents his name. He has a purpose that's attached to it, whereas a slave just has a job. He doesn't have any purpose. So these are men that used to be slaves, and I see them still having that slave mentality. And this man that's out there fulfilling his mission and his purpose are threatening their mentality that you're supposed to do just the bare minimum, and you're not called to this greatness. Just function in the role that you were called to do. The enemy would love nothing more than for you to come to church if he can't stop you from coming to church, he would love for you to just come to church, just sit on the pew, keep your mouth shut, and go home and keep your mouth shut. Never get out and step out in faith and be full of the Holy Ghost and function in that missional role, but just stay in that slave role, that I'm a slave to the house, but I don't have any ownership for it. I don't have any reason to tell other people about Jesus and what he's done for me. I don't have any, there's no, there's no responsibility on me to grow it. Then I'm just a slave to it. You tell me to do something, I'll do it, and I'll do a good job. But I have no self-initiative, and I have no ownership of it. And these are the type of people that he's dealing with are, are people that used to be slaves. So they initiated, they secretly initiated. They, they were not able to, to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. So, so they, they initiated this, this plan to have other people say that, that, that we heard him speak blasphemy against God. We heard him speak against Moses. Basically, he's tearing down the law. And the whole, the whole goal was to, to shut him up. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him. They brought him to the council. They set up false witnesses which said, This man ceaseth, ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs with Mo which Moses delivered us. 
and all that sat in the council, looking steadfast on him, saw his face as if it had been the face of an angel. So he's in this position where he's being forced to defend his stance, to defend his integrity, to defend his, his intentions by these vicious men that are literally lying against him. But they're actually saying things where there's a seed of truth in there, but it's just construed in a way to make him look blasphemous. So in, in chapter number 7, we're going to go through chapter 6 and chapter 7 kind of kind of bleed together in the, in the same story. So the high priest asked Stephen, he said, are these things so? So he's standing in the presence of this high priest with these religious rulers and these religious leaders and these straight-up liars, and he's in this on this platform where he's being accused of something, and they're trying to put him in a position where he has to defend himself. And I'm not going to read through all this for you because he goes through like 50 verses where he's referencing Moses, he's referencing Joseph, he references David, he goes through Abraham, he goes through all of this stuff from the Old Testament. But, but really what he does is he takes them all the way back to Abraham, and he takes them through the covenant. He takes them through the law and what the covenant really means and the new covenant. And then he tactfully challenges. The, he, he challenges the, 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 uh, Ju, the Judaism's pillars of piety, which is the law and the temple. He comes against them and challenges these two things. And we see Stephen in full living color, and he's very intelligent. He's very, uh, he's very theologically learned. He's, he's, he's extremely, extremely knowledgeable of the Scriptures and of the Old Testament. But he's been put in a position where they tried to put him on trial, defending his view, the view that they have of him as a heretic. But he literally flips the script on them, and he takes the stance as somebody, he's like, I, I'm not on trial to defend. I'm here to be a witness. So he completely turns this and takes control of the situation, and instead of defending himself, he becomes a witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ and points out how all of history was pointing to this very moment. And this was all lining up for the New Testament and for the new covenant. Now understand that if somebody could give me some water, I'd appreciate it. <coughs> understand that he is in a small sect of apostolic believers that are standing up against a force, a mighty force of established religious structure and overall just a religious machine. He's fighting against the machine. Literally, he's standing up against everything that they've embedded in their tradition, and the gospel is challenging those things. The gospel of grace is challenging this whole structure of the law, where I have to do this, I have to earn this, I have to follow A, B, C, and D, and in that order. And he's coming up against that with the gospel of Jesus Christ defending the gospel and presenting the gospel and witnessing the gospel right before their eyes. And you know, sometimes, at least the position I've been in before, 
in, and I guess it would, uh, just, just to be transparent, in moments of fear, in moments of insecurity, in moments of immaturity, when you're faced with this gap of this is what you believe and this is what we believe and there's this massive gap between the two and you really believe that? There's this temptation in those moments to try to like sugar, like you try to close the gap a little bit. Like I'm not going to abort what I believe and I'm not going to condemn what you believe, but try to present it like, you know, it's really not that different. Like you're explaining it like this and I'm explaining it like this. I remember one time, uh, this was years ago when I worked at AT AT&T in the retail store. I was talking with somebody and I I was trying to witness to them and and we were talking about the fact that I was Pentecostal. And this other guy just kind of popped his head in. The, like, I didn't even know he was listening. He, like, popped his head around the door. He's like, like the church in Borat? Which, if you haven't seen that clip, don't go watch it on, on YouTube. It was uh, not one of our finest moments. But the uh, immediately, I'm like, I wanted to be like, no, 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 not like that church. It was a United Pentecostal church camp meeting that this guy showed up at. Uh, undercover, pretending like he was doing a documentary, pretending like he got the holy. It was just a complete mockery and uh, was in theaters all over the nation. And at first, I want to be like, no, not. I'm like, you know what? Yeah, like that. <laughs> that was out of context. That was a skewed vision of it. But yes, like that. We believe, and he's like, you believe in speaking in tongues? Like, because they show a video of him like pretending like he got the Holy Ghost. And it, it was just, it was horrible. I was like, absolutely, the Holy Ghost is real, the power of God is real, love to sit down and talk with you about it more. But the temptation is there to try to distance myself from how radical my view might be and try to include you of like, yeah, you're really closer to what I believe than than what you think. But Stephen, in that moment of, I'm sure he had that temptation, but he's full of faith and he's full of the Holy Ghost. And he makes it very clear, this is what you believe, this is why you believed it, and this is why it's wrong. This is the problem with what you believe. He wasn't trying to be disrespectful, but he was being put in a position where they were saying, hey, you're being accused of these things. What, what's going on here? Explain your position. So he goes through and explains his position to them. And it's in those moments of temptation that really we decide our fate. Are we going to, to stand up for the truth of God's word and experience the persecution but then get a hold of the power that comes with that persecution? Are we going to buckle under pressure and still live with no power, not see any signs, not see any works, not see God accomplish any of these great things through our life because we refuse to stand up for him? There's something about this power that is demonstrated through persecution, that when the church is persecuted, a persecuted church is a powerful church. And you see that in the New Testament. The more they tried to destroy it, the more they spread it. Jesus told them in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that you're going to receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. You're going to be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. So they had that promise over them, 
but they've been preaching around Jerusalem. But there's something through what happens in Stephen's life. You'll see this when we start to study chapter number 8, but just a little spoiler alert for you. In chapter 8, verse number 1, it's, it talks about how Saul was consenting. There was great persecution against the church, which was, which was at Jerusalem. They were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. The persecution just spread the church. It couldn't stop the church. All it did was spread it. Y'all can hear how raspy my voice is. They brought me a cough drop. Lord bless you. I'm about to, anybody got some anointing oil I can glug a little bit of that? But we, we all want the power. We want the power of the new church. God, give me that power. Give me that power. Give me that power. But yet we don't want to deal with the persecution. And we're not even talking about persecution that they face. We're talking about persecution like somebody gave you a thumbs down on a comment that you put on Facebook, and that's like, I, can't do, I just can't do this anymore. You posted a meme of a scripture, and like somebody comments and says, I don't want to see. You're like, oh, I just, I can't deal with this. Like, it's too much pressure. I know people. I know people that believe the apostolic doctrine, but they walked away from it to go find something that wasn't as weird that was more accepted in mainstream Christianity just because they didn't want to deal with answering the questions. I can't deal with being different. With the, the leadership and the training that these men in the New Testament had, do you know how big they could have? They could have been the biggest names in mainstream Judaism. If they had decided to buckle under pressure and give in and walk away from the apostolic doctrine and follow the mainstream Jewish teachings, they could have been big names. But they resisted that temptation and stood up against the persecution. And because of it, they received power like the world had never seen before. They had never seen the power, and they could not wrap their heads around, why can't we stop this? Why can't we stop this movement? Why can't we stop what they're doing and what God is doing through them? So he's standing there strong on the apostolic doctrine, knowing that he's full of faith and seeing that they're full of hatred. And he goes through... And this can be your, uh, it would literally take us 30 minutes just to read through all of this. This would be your reading assignment this week. Go home and read chapter 7. But he goes through all of this, and he's pretty blunt. He says some, some pretty straight things to them. And it's almost like when he gets to verse number 51, it, it, it's almost like Stephen's like, hey, just in case anybody's confused on where I really stand on this, let me just drive this point home. And this, this is like the moment of, like, I'm going to put it all on the line here. There's no going back. Once I say this, it's done. Have you ever had that, like, as soon as I click send on this text, like, I don't know where this is going to end up, but it, there's no taking this back. I'm going to drive the nail into the coffin with this one. As soon as I click send, it's done. I don't know. It's either going to be really bad or really good. So he risks it all. In verse number 51, <clears throat> he says, you stiff-necked, 
and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? Or they have slain them which have shown before of the coming of the just one, of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers, who received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. And it says, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed on him with their teeth. It just got real. They're literally biting him. They didn't just dislike his picture on Facebook. They were straight up biting Stephen. Like Twilight style, like vampire stuff, biting him. And the next few verses, there's so much that happens within them, but we don't have time to get through it all. But there's, there's one thing that I really want to highlight in verse number 56, verse number 55, but he, speaking of Stephen, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus on the right hand of God. So he's got people biting him, and his response is to look up. He's looking to Jesus. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. They cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And we had said this, he fell asleep. So he's in this position. They go from biting him to stoning him. And it's in that moment of extreme persecution where he has stood up for God. I love this. You read the Old Testament, you're always going to see God sitting on his throne. But when God faces somebody that stands up for him, Stephen said, I see Jesus standing up for me. I don't think it's coincidence that Jesus is doing for Stephen what Stephen did for Jesus. It's like Jesus said, don't worry, Stephen. I'm not going to leave you hanging. You stood up for me. Now I'm standing for you. And on the eternal throne of glory, Jesus is looking down, watching this man that is literally. Now watch this. This is the first martyr of the New Testament church. There will be many more after him, but this is the first martyr. Stephen is the first one to give his life in the New Testament church. And Jesus is standing there watching him. Jesus knows how it feels. He knows how it feels to be on trial. He knows how it feels for them to be physically attacking you and destroying the flesh. And it's like Jesus is saying, I got you. I got this, Stephen. You stood up for me, now I'm standing for you. It's almost like Jesus is there giving him a standing ovation, saying it's going to be all right, Stephen. You stayed true to the end. You gave your life for this. But one thing that, that I see here, and this jumped out at me today when I was studying this, is 
The Bible tells us in, um, and I wrote it down in my phone because I had my phone when I was looking at it, but I didn't put it in my notes. I know it's in, I believe it's in 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 3, verse number 2. It says, Behold now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So there's this formula that John is giving in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, that when we see Jesus, we become like Jesus. When we see Jesus, we become like Jesus. Now, to support that point, we can go all the way back to the book of Daniel, and we can look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The Bible tells us that they were thrown into a fiery furnace. Now, the fire should have destroyed them. But there was a fourth man that showed up that was like unto the Son of God. So when that fourth man showed up, this is, this is the Gettys' interpretation of it. When the fourth man showed up, they became like the fourth man. Now, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29 says, For our God is a consuming fire. So the fourth man that showed up was fire. Now, when you put fire in the middle of fire, you can't burn fire with fire. So the fire showed up, and those that were standing up for him became like him because he showed up. There's something about when people stand up for him that God has to show up and stand up and stand with them. And when we see him, when we look upon him, we become like him. Look at Peter. Peter looks out at Jesus walking on the water, and he says, Lord, if it's you, bid me to come. Jesus says, come. And the Bible tells us that Peter was looking at Jesus, and he steps out onto the water. But then it says when he saw the wind and the waves boisterous, that he began to sink. So when he looks at Jesus, he becomes like Jesus. Jesus is stationary, standing upon something that's moving. But when he looks he, it's these natural distractions that destroy his faith. When he looks at the natural things that are surrounding him and stops looking at Jesus, he becomes like those things. The waves are up and then they're down. Some of you can relate to that. That I feel like I live my life and I'm up one day and it's a really high high. And then I'm down the next and it's a really low low. My question is, is what are you looking at? When you look at the problems that are coming against you, when you look at the circumstances, the situations that you're dealing with every single day, those, the instability of those things become your nature. But if you can learn to look above the waves, to look above the wind, and to look into the face of Jesus, you become like Jesus. When he stops looking at Jesus, he sinks. When he looks at Jesus, he can stand stationary upon something that he should sink in, but he can stand upon it. So I don't think, I just don't think it's an accident that he looks at Jesus and he becomes like Jesus. What does Jesus do when he's dying? 
The Bible says that he submitted himself unto death, even the death of the cross. He, he doesn't fight it. He submits to it. He didn't bite. We don't read where he bit them back. This wasn't some like Team Jacob, Team Edward thing where they're fighting. No, he submitted himself to death. And he becomes like Jesus. He's looking at Jesus, so he has no choice but to become like Jesus. What is the final thing that Jesus says before he dies? He says it's finished, but before that he prays a prayer. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So it's no accident that as he's looking at Jesus in this moment of persecution, that he kneels down and cried with a loud voice and said, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he said that, he fell asleep. As he's looking at Jesus, he finds the strength for forgiveness. When you're looking at the face of the person that's beating you with that rock or that's biting you, it's hard to find the forgiveness. But when you can lift your eyes up against the people that are hurting you and look into the face of Jesus. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 12, I believe it's verse number 3, speaking about Jesus, that who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Because there was something that was set before him, he was able to endure that suffering. I, I, don't, I don't know what, what God allowed Stephen to see, but it's, it's interesting that we're, we're, we have this picture painted of the first martyr of the New Testament church. And in this picture, we see Stephen, we see him looking at Jesus, but over off in the corner of the picture, you've got to paint in a young man by the name of Saul. And this is our first introduction to this man named Saul. At the moment that Stephen's life is fading off of the scene, Saul's life is coming into the picture. And I don't think it's a coincidence. I don't know, and this is just me thinking, I don't know if, if, if Stephen somehow knew in his spirit that, God, you're going to accomplish something out of this. The gospel is going to be furthered. People are going to see that I was true to you. People are going to see that I could stand up. I'm the first martyr of the New Testament church. Everyone that gets killed from now on will know that you had my back. I, I, don't, I don't know what's going through his mind. I don't know if God showed him that at some point, See that guy over there holding the coats? He's going to write two-thirds of the New Testament. He's going to evangelize the majority of Asia. He's going to spread the gospel places it's never been before and would probably never go without him. And it's almost that moment of Stephen fades out. Saul hasn't been converted yet, but he fades into the scene. And you can't tell me, you can't, this, this is the first person that is killed for the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can't tell me that a young man, the Bible tells us he's a young man at this moment, that this young man doesn't go home and think about what just happened. That first time, that's got to stick in your brain. Seeing the face of this young man, Stephen, it said it looked like an angel 
It's like when they realize that they killed Jesus, they're like, what in the world did we just do? There had to be that type of a moment with Stephen too. But there was something about that guy. He stood up for his faith. And I believe that it's moments like that that later on in his life that after Saul is converted and becomes Paul, he writes in 2 Timothy, I think it's chapter number 4, and he's talking about coming to the end of his journey. And he says that I'm willing to be poured out I'm willing to be poured out like a drink offering. I'm willing to be poured out for other people. I'm willing to give my life for somebody else. I can't help but think that that image of Stephen dying while he holds their coats, seared in his mind, and when he thinks about everything that he has to go through, that somebody suffered so that the gospel could be portrayed in full living color to me. So I'm willing to pour out my life for somebody else. I'm willing to go through what I have to go through for somebody else. I'm willing to lay it all on the line for somebody else because I'm that much in love with Jesus Christ. Would you stand with me tonight? Sister Shauna, would you come to the music? I was, um, every night I, I lay and pray with my girls in bed, <clears throat> and I was praying with Aurora the, the other night, it was on Monday night, and she's overheard me talk, apparently with Nadine, about frustrations about my job and leadership at the company that I work for, and we had gone through our prayers, we prayed for, for different family members and situations, and Aurora said, Daddy, can I, can I pray for something? I was like, Sure. I, had, I mean, you, with a kid, you, you have no idea what you're saying yes to with that. And it's a moment that I feel like I'll never forget. It was just seared in my spirit. And um, Aurora said, Jesus, I pray for my dad's boss tonight. That if there's somebody that's hurt him, somebody that's caused him pain, or maybe if he has... And she just kind of kept going through the scenarios. Maybe he's had somebody in his family that died, or maybe people are being rude to him. If he's hurt, I pray that you would heal his heart. Whatever it is that's causing him to be a mean person, I pray that you would heal him. And in that moment, I was like, <laughs> I seriously, like, started crying. I was like, what in the world? Like, I've been, pr- I pray for me. I pray God make my situation better, not God make his situation better. But the faith and the true love and selflessness of the purity of a child, whatever's causing that person to be mean to me, would you help them? How pure is that? Whatever they're going through, help them. And I'm like, God, get him out of his company. This is recorded. I gotta be careful what I say. But it just struck me in my spirit that I'm so selfish sometimes. I thought about the people like Paul and Silas that are in prison, and they're praying. We don't, it doesn't tell us what they're praying for. But they're praying 
an earthquake happens, they're loose and the prison doors are open, but they don't leave. So they weren't praying for that. They weren't praying to be loosed. You can't tell me they were praying to be loosed. If they're praying to be loosed and God shows up, you get out of that jail as quick as you can before they catch you. That's not what they were praying for because they didn't leave. They went and found the jailer and said, hey, we're all here. We're not going anywhere. And they witnessed and converted that jailer. That had to have been their prayer. How many times can God not answer our prayer or show up for us because our motives are wrong and we're praying for the wrong things? They were in there for a reason. God was trying to reach a jailer that maybe never would have come in contact with the gospel anywhere else. So Paul and Silas had to go sit in prison and have a good attitude and stay there when they could have got out so that somebody else's life could be impacted. That job that you go to every day that you hate and you're looking for a new one and wondering why won't you open up another door, God? God's saying because you haven't done the work that I put you there to do yet. You haven't reached the person. You don't know who in that building is going home at night and contemplating suicide. You don't know who's getting ready to walk away from their marriage and getting ready to give it all up. And God's positioned us God's positioned me, and I just have such a stinking proud attitude that I can't see through it. I'm saying, God, get rid of my boss. What is God saying? Why don't you reach your boss? Because that's why you're there. Stephen didn't say, God, I hope you're keeping track. I hope you're keeping score. I hope you destroy them, and don't let them do this to anyone else. Stephen says, no, God, please don't hold this against them. Whatever you do, God, don't hold this against them. He was willing to lay it all down for Jesus. Great persecution brings about great power, and the church wasn't destroyed because of that. You go read your Bible. The church grew stronger and stronger and spread to places it would have never gone had it not been for the persecution. It was pushed out. Would you lift your hands all across this room? Every hand uplifted. I just want you to begin to talk to God and let God speak into your spirit. God, what, where am I at and why am I here? What are the reasons? What are you working on in me? For me, it's it's been a cry of desperation of, God, I... I want to move on. I don't want to keep be stuck in this rut. What do I have to do? What can I change? What can I fix? What can you do in me? Where can I submit to you? Because I don't want to be here next year. What are you trying to do in my life? I want to submit to it so your purpose can be fulfilled. God, in what areas has it become all about me? I'm so selfish. I can't see beyond myself to what you're trying to do to impact somebody else that there was somebody else. I was an inconvenience for somebody else so that I could be saved. I was an inconvenience. I'm here because somebody else went out of their way.
My mom got saved at 15 years old, was the only one from her family that lived for God. There was a family in the church that drove 20 miles out of their way to go pick her up, drove her into church, and then drove another 20 miles out of their way to go drop her off, and then drove back in to go home. That's an inconvenience. We're like, God, man, I can't, I can't fight traffic to get to church early to, to greet somebody or to, to help. I can't do it. Whose life is on the line? Who's depending on you? Who's God wanting to reach through you and through me? If I could get out of the way and get my flesh out of the way and just let the Spirit of God move in my life. One more time, would you just let that be your prayer? God, I give myself to you tonight. I give myself to you tonight, Jesus. God, I pray that you would forgive me for the moments, the moments where I've totally missed what you were doing, what you were trying to do. God, I hope, I hope that there's not people that are lost because I wasn't ready when I was in the right place at the right time, but I wasn't ready. I pray that you would help us to redeem those moments, that you would recreate those moments, God, that you would help us to be sensitive to your spirit, help us be sensitive to what you're doing in this community, in this region, God, in this kingdom. Jesus, I pray every business interaction that I have, God, that somehow, some way, you'll help it to be on my mind, that this might be a person that you're trying to reach. This might not just be an accident. This might not just be a call that I just happened to make. God, this might be a divine moment that you've lined up for years, and you've put me in that position. And I pray that you would help me to be sensitive, that you would help me, God, to be sensitive to your spirit and to respond. Jesus, I pray that when I'm out in the grocery store, rather than getting frustrated with the line and how slow it's going, that you would help me to recognize that that person that's standing beside me, maybe they never heard about Jesus. They may be one invitation away from coming to church. They may be one invitation away from coming to a life study. They may be one invitation away from giving their life to God. Or they might be one night away from taking their life. God, I pray that you would help us to be sensitive in those moments. That you would help us to be sensitive, God. Help us to be sensitive, Jesus, in those moments where our flesh is getting frustrated, but you're trying to do something in our spirits. Help us to be full of faith and full of the Holy Ghost, Jesus. Before we leave tonight, I want to pray again. Right before I came up to preach, I, I got a text message that um, Brother Fred Meza passed away. Such a unexpected event out of nowhere that nobody could have planned for or expected in that family. I can't even imagine what they're going through right now. So not only right now in this moment, but for the rest of the week, I encourage you to keep them in your prayers. Recently, having gone through something similar, I can tell you that sometimes the best thing you can do is just tell somebody, hey, there's no words I'm praying. Because there is no words and they just need your prayers. Sometimes with good intentions, we can uh, in the church say things that don't make a ton of sense. 
And sometimes the best thing to do is just to love on somebody and say, I'm praying for you and I love you. And uh, just in love and prayers are way. So would you just join the hand of the person next to you? We'll join together as a body of Christ. One thing about a body is when, when uh, one area of it hurts, if your finger hurts, your finger doesn't just hurt. Your whole body feels it and it impacts everything that you do. And we join together right now tonight as a body of Christ to pray for Brother Fred Meza and their family. Would you lift your voices with me right now? Jesus, God, we look to you tonight. We look to you for your strength. We look to you, Jesus, for your peace. God, we speak it right now over that family, the extended family. God, those that are, are receiving news right now and they haven't even received the news yet. Such an unexpected event that nobody could have planned for. But God, you see, you see the end before the beginning even happens. You knew the moment was coming. We rest in comfort in that tonight. God, I, I pray that you would send out a host of ministering angels. Your word says that your angels are sent to minister to the heirs of salvation. God, I pray that angels would go out of this room right now, that angels would descend from heaven upon that family, that they would feel the presence and the strength of God. Lord, that we pray that through this, that you would get glory. God, that you would do something powerful for your kingdom. And we join together right now in prayer. Over Sister Meza, God, over those children. God, any immediate family, extended family, friends of the family, we just pray that you would be with them in the moments where the questions come and the emotions are overwhelming. We pray that the Spirit of God would come in, that you would be there, Jesus, to stand up and defend. God, we pray a, a hedge of protection around their home, around their minds, around their lives. I pray against the attack that the enemy would try to bring against them in a moment of weakness and vulnerability. We speak against it by the authority, the name of Jesus Christ. We join together right now as a body of Christ, and we declare against the enemy that there is a hedge of protection around that family, around their minds, around their thoughts. We speak it right now, a host of angels sent to protect them. In the name of Jesus Christ, we thank you for it, Jesus. Why don't you shake each other's hand and love on one another as you dismiss. May the blessings of the Lord be upon you, and we'll see you out here on Sunday.